welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending December 10th, 2022. This week, Zaslav learns how payments work. I'm Kim Hollis, sad to inform David that the peppermint milkshake goes away in two weeks. I got the threatening notification from Chick-fil-A. How many can I stick in my freezer before it's too late? (laughs) (laughs) With me are Tim Bridey, content creator and gamer, hoping the Mets sign him to a free agent contract. Show me the money, Uncle Steve. Come on, you're already over the luxury tax threshold. Doesn't matter at this point. I mean, we learned this week they'll give $200 million to anyone, so. <laughs> also, David Mumpower, author of Disney Demystified, streaming media analyst, and 7,000 times more competent at his job than David Zaslav. The math checks out. <laughs> And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burial, who can't get past the fact that Clarabelle and Pete are an item now. Look, I'm not a bigot. Cows and cats together? Sure, fine. But Pete's a villain. Once Pete underwent his redemption arc in Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, it was all downhill from there. I'm just saying I watch too much children's programming. (laughs) I have missed a lot in the Mickey Mouse Cinematic Universe. (laughs) (laughs) It may be a slow news week, but Warner Brothers Discovery still can't help but step in it. The restructuring evidently isn't over, as Nancy Daniels, who was head of TBS and TNT, as well as a number of Discovery channels, and Jane Lapman, who was in charge of Food Network, are both out. Wait, there are a number of Discovery channels? (laughs) More than we care to think about, yes. Oh, God. Kathleen Finch remains in charge as chairperson and CEO of Warner Bros. Discovery's American Networks. She's the one who said that TNT and TBS were still in the original content business back in October, but maybe Daniels and Latman weren't seeing eye to eye with their boss. I mean, it's hysterical to me. She might still be in the original content business, but she's just been told, well, your job isn't. That's what just happened. Oh, geez. Like, Daniels had been with the company for 15 years. The company being Discovery, not Warner Brothers, but she's been in charge of the Turner Networks only since May. David, you had some thoughts as to how this might impact WBD's relationship with All Elite Wrestling? Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything specific in terms of sources here. This is just more general thoughts. Tony Khan has a pay-per-view that's actually airing while we record this podcast, and it's a Ring of Honor pay-per-view. He recently bought Ring of Honor, and the belief is he acquired it so that he could air that streaming content on HBO Max. And during the press conference, Khan hinted that some sort of resolution on that was coming this Saturday. So by the time you hear this podcast, you might already have it. We don't yet. And I'm now wondering whether the person who was able to cut that deal is no longer with the company and they're screwed again. Because let me tell you, a lot of the struggles that have happened with All Elite Wrestling over the last 24 months have come because of the changes in leadership that happened once, twice, three times. Oh, wait, this is now the fourth time. The point person at AEW is the Spinal Tap drummer. That's just the reality of it. Oh, <laughs> jeez. 
Yeah, David, you uh, you lean towards AEW being the better of the wrestling circuits right now compared to WWE. And the fact that they really can't catch a break with Warner Bros. Discovery, who is their streaming partner at the moment, seems to be like they're getting a pretty raw deal out of all this. Right. They did an extended contract and they don't actually get to renegotiate until 2024. And throughout this process, there's been any number of signs that AEW was going to get like this big money contract because it's better value than WWE, and it's also substantially better contact. The difference in content between the two is almost comical. It really is. Even with new ownership, WWE just can't help itself. It's mistake-prone like crazy. AEW continues to deliver excellent pay-per-view after excellent pay-per-view, and yet, when it comes to the cable ratings, everything is down because linear television is dying, and it just seems like every bit of news that comes out makes AEW's next contract negotiations look that much worse because because, oh yeah, streaming revenue is going to be the next conversation for everyone. As we realize, companies can't just throw a blank check at content anymore. They have to do it in a way that makes sense. Well, when you've got a company that's getting 800,000, 900,000 people watching a live broadcast, you're probably not going to pay them a quarter million dollars the way that, you know, WWE has been paid in the past. This is devastating for them. Yeah, I was going to say, it just feels like Tony Khan keeps losing allies in terms of all these, the changes in leadership at Warner Brothers Discovery. And yeah, I mean, to be fair, the, the show, there is less AW content than WWE content. They only have three hours of, well, two hours of live programming and then a one-hour show that's sometimes live. WWE puts on five hours of live programming every, every week, actually six, sometimes seven, which is just way too much. But yeah, they Dynamite sometimes does crack a million, but lately it's settled into like the 800, 900,000 range, as you were saying. And that is worrying for what was supposed to be culminate after a big money deal after the initial one ran out. Just to a larger point, if you're in linear television right now and you think, hey, I'm going to eventually sell to streaming, the events of the last eight months have just been financially devastating for you because suddenly all of the things that we expected to happen aren't on the table. Disney is cutting costs. HBO Max doesn't pay anything. Then you've got, you know, even Netflix is blanching at some of the expenses. And it's not like, you know, I can envision a scenario where somebody like Apple or Amazon goes, hey, we want AEW programming. Now, it's great programming. Maybe they should. But it's not the type of programming that, you know, Al Michaels is going to talk about on, you know, television. <laughs> Just the reality of it. So everything that's happening here, there are people caught in the middle and AEW has become one of those companies. It should have been much better off than it was. And it just goes to show you the dangers of four and five year deals. You don't know what's going to happen in three years that can set you. Additionally, after leaving Amazon's Prime Video Channels program last year, HBO Max has returned to the platform this week. This is where you can subscribe to a streaming service through another streaming service. Roku and Apple TV both do this and then take a share of that subscription revenue. Warner Brothers under Jason Kylar had decided that it was more important for HBO Max to get 100% of the subscriber revenue than to be more broadly available across all platforms. This is just another case of CEO David Zaslov undoing everything his predecessor did, even at the detriment of the company. It actually feels like he has a list of 25 things that Jason Kyler did, and he's just checking them off, whether they make any business sense whatsoever or not. We praised Kyler at the time for doing something that was bold and inventive. And of course, Zaslov, who, you know, isn't even 1% 
of the media mind that Kyler is, is just going to blow this up because he doesn't get anything. But the most significant WBD story this week may have broken on Friday night as Zaslav suddenly realized he wasn't happy with the deal his company had with Netflix and wanted to renegotiate. Yeah, uh, of course, Zaslav didn't just realize that Friday night, but the news broke on Friday night. This this happened a few months ago. Warner Brothers Discovery is a major provider of third-party programming to Netflix that includes shows like Sweet Tooth, the serial killer drama You, Manifest, and CW shows like All American, The Flash, Riverdale, and Supernatural. But all this stems evidently from Zaslav reading the deal for The Sandman and saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He's acting like someone who's got all the power and not realizing that he's negotiating for a position of weakness. He wants a bigger chunk of his revenue and he wants more of it up front. If you give Netflix too much of a hard time, they're just going to cancel your show and move on to someone else. There's plenty of content creators out there knocking on their door. Warner Brothers Discovery has decided they can do better licensing out their programs to someone else rather than showing them on HBO Max and then realize they weren't getting as much for these shows as they thought they'd be getting. They are acting like a bunch of amateurs who didn't read the contract. Oh, they're not acting like they're being proven to be amateurs. And that's what's staggering about this sort of deal. Have some shame, no embarrassment, like understand the things you don't understand enough to at least shut your mouth about them. And that's what we're facing right now. This is a level of ignorance that just shames everyone involved. We wondered at the time, and in a way, I'm relieved this story came out because the lack of a renewal for Sandman made no sense. And Neil Gaiman just seemed so desperate about it. Like, please do this and please do that. We got to get this show renewed. He was trying to pressure Netflix. It had nothing to do with Netflix. We know that now. It had people who didn't understand how television works going, I don't know, I want some money. And just (laughs) when you have a contract in place, all you have to do is read it. And then think, oh, I see how this works. And apparently no one who came over from the discovery side of the acquisition actually knew how television and movie licensing works. And if that doesn't give a chill in your spine, I don't know what will. The same article points out that Discovery, shortly before the merger, had tried to renegotiate the payment deals on their programs so that producers of the shows would have to pay for them up front. So say you were producing Naked and Afraid or Deadliest Catch, as a producer, you would have to cover all the costs of that show before Discovery would then pay out for the programming after it had aired. They're trying to get it both ways, and as it turns out, it looks like they're not getting it Either way, it demonstrates a lack of understanding of how things work in the streaming world. I get it that if you don't like the way things work, you try to change them. But Warner Bros. Discovery and David Zaslov do not have a leg to stand on. You don't go to Netflix and say, I want a new deal and expect that Netflix is going to give you that new deal. You've got nothing to offer. The poker equivalent of this is he just tried to bluff when everyone could see his whole cards. It's that simple. In our rapid fire this week, Peacock's being fighty. They announced they now have 18 million paid subscribers, which is up 3 million from September. And NBC Universal's CEO says they expect a big check to come from Disney for their stake in Hulu. I think we need to start taking Peacock a little bit more seriously here. We never have to... <laughs> just wait till the ratings. <laughs> We have to remember that Peacock is a hybrid of both a subscription streaming service and a free ad-supported streaming service. As I'd like to point out, 
repeatedly, Comcast, Cox, and Charter subscribers get Peacock included in their cable TV package. That's over 37 million subscribers on top of those 18 million who are paying for Peacock. Trying to compare Peacock to, say, HBO Max or Disney Plus or Netflix is comparing apples to oranges. Yeah, and the apples are rotten. Let me be clear on that. We knew this was going to happen. And I want to say two things here, one of which is seminal to this conversation. When NBC Universal announces subscriber numbers during the earnings report, they're subject to SEC regulations. When you just hand a guy from NBC Universal a microphone, he can say whatever he wants. So the first thing we need to see is whether or not these numbers actually hold when they have to like back them up in court. The second thing is, as a reminder, in September, they just pulled all of their programming off of Hulu and put it on Peacock. That lost them a massive amount of money. So they need a complimentary spike in their number of subscribers to make it up. And they got 3 million, which admittedly is a 20% increase, but 18 million subscribers is not even the lightweight in the streaming competition. It is featherweight. Now you can say, well, they could have 37 million more. And Raul and I have had this conversation privately. I understand that thought process, just as I remember how when we talked about HBO, we'd say 4 million hotels actually have have HBO contracts that count toward the HBO subscriber numbers. You start getting with that, it gets super muddy fast. What we know is in terms of activity, Peacock is not doing anywhere near what a fully mature streaming service should to the point that the rumors percolate that they're just going to buy HBO Max Discovery at some point and then they're just going to kill Peacock. That is one of the most, let's say, prevalent rumors out there about the next phase of the media streaming wars. That wouldn't happen if anybody actually viewed Peacock as viable. It's not. It's that simple. So, David, I'm more interested, actually, in the Hulu aspect of this conversation. Is NBCU just posturing when it comes to Hulu? Do they have Disney over a barrel here? We're, we've talked about how Hulu doesn't really have a place in the Disney ecosystem everywhere in the world outside the United States. Hulu content is actually part of Disney+. Plus, So it would be relatively easy for Disney to retire the Hulu brand in the US as well. Does Disney even want to keep Hulu? Is this is this NBC Universal's out where they acquire Hulu as their streaming platform and this becomes their their marquee streaming platform and we all forget that Peacock ever happened? I don't know the answer to that. I will say that if Bob Chapek had remained as the head of Disney, I'm relatively confident Hulu would have remained with Disney. The return of Bob Iger and their unexpected financial struggles kind of put asterisks around this entire conversation. Now, I want to say the NBC Universal guy, I don't think that much better of him than I do of David Zasloff. I'm just going to say it like that. There was a lot of posturing in this. He also was bragging about how NBC Universal animation has surpassed Disney. Disney, which is just laughable on its face. But, you know, you've got some pandemic related box office numbers you can use to support it if you want to make the disingenuous bad faith argument, which apparently he did. So for whatever reason, this guy who nobody cares about comes out swinging on Disney at a time where he perceives them as weak. Now, from Disney's perspective, they're probably looking at a $10 billion check to NBC Universal for their final part of Hulu. Right now, NBC Universal owns one third, but Disney makes all the decisions. Well, we've 
discussed many times, NBC Universal's owner Comcast and Disney have had all kinds of feuds over Fox, over uh, Sky in England. There's been all kinds of little skirmishes between them that have cost each company tens of billions of dollars. They need to work together and they don't. And I don't get it because it's costing everybody a lot of money. If cooler heads and calmer minds would do stuff, it would save a lot of aggravation. I think what's going to happen here is Disney is going to buy them, but Disney could theoretically do the other thing here. Well, if you say that one third of the company is worth 12 or 15 billion, fine, we'll sell you our two thirds for an appropriate amount, 24 to 30 billion. And then suddenly Disney wipes out all its debt at one point. I did not think that was a realistic possibility I mean, as recently as six weeks ago, I didn't. Today, I'm not 100% certain. So, Roel, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've just made the argument why maybe Hulu isn't as valuable. Talk to me about what you would do if you were in the position of Disney. Let's remember that early in the this streaming era at the start of the pandemic, subscriber numbers were a lot more important than revenue. Wall Street only cared about how many subscribers you had. And so it made a lot of sense for Disney to double and triple count their subscribers when they were saying, we have this many Disney Plus subscribers, as well as this many ESPN Plus subscribers, as well as this many Hulu subscribers, even though it was all just one individual who was subscribed, say, through the Disney bundle. When subscriber numbers are less important than revenue, then and Disney can take a hit in their number of subscribers so long as they can come around and say, but we have this much more revenue than we had say, the previous quarter. So Hulu is not as important to Disney's bottom line as it used to be because its main benefit to the company was that it was an additional streaming service that brought in an additional number of subscribers, which themselves were not genuine additional revenue. These people were already paying for these streaming services. It was a fake number in the end. Disney can get rid of Hulu now, say that our subscriber numbers have declined by X number because we don't have all these Hulu subscribers anymore. They don't lose any of their content. They still own the content that was previously on Hulu. Now it's simply showing up on Disney Plus. And in return, they get that 20 or $30 billion that wipes out their debt and makes Wall Street very happy because money is always more important to subscribers, even though we were in this rather irrational period for some time where all we cared about were how many subscribers you have we're past that. I think the benefit of Hulu to the Walt Disney Company has long passed. Its only benefit now is how much it can sell for. And for all its posturing, NBC Universal is going to end up having to buy Hulu. Since the beginning of the podcast, this is really one of the few areas where Raul and I have had philosophical, ideological differences of opinion. I have always seen Hulu as more valuable than Raul does. And I don't think that's changed here. We're talking about 47 million subscribers. And if Disney removes them from its vaunted Disney bundle, the appeal of that diminishes. Um, you could say, hey, we're going to take the content over to Disney Plus, and that's accurate. But it does kind of shake the value of the bundle. And Disney has really spent a lot of time just marketing the strength of that package. So, you know, there's going to be short-term setbacks. Now, the reverse of this is NBC Universal is just playing itself into a corner with bad decision after bad decision. And that's that's what I see here when I look across the board. It's just maddening to me. NBC Universal takes all of its content off of Hulu. Roll simple question. Doesn't that make Hulu subscriptions much less valuable? 
It does. However you want to frame it, that was a power play by NBC Universal. They swallowed whatever the cost was in terms of whatever profit they were making from showing those shows on Hulu and putting them exclusively on Peacock. There was a cost to that. But by doing that, they are hurting the value of Hulu, which arguably hurts Disney. So we were talking a moment ago about NBC Universal's bad faith argument. Now Disney could make a good faith argument, couldn't it? We've just listed the criticisms of Hulu. It's not a powerhouse internationally. Subscriber numbers have kind of plateaued. I mean, I just said it has 47 million subscribers. Well, start of the year it had, at the start of the fiscal year, it had 45 million. So we have talked about a relative flatlining in subscribers and now there's less content because NBC has removed itself, which means Disney can turn around and go, well, we're going to pay for the one third share. We don't have to pay as much money because the decisions NBC Universal did that hurt the value of its own one third interest. And if I'm Disney, that is probably the law lawsuit angle I am taking as this goes to arbitration, which still seems like the likeliest outcome for me is they're going to wait and see what an arbitrator rules on this. And then they're both going to look at the numbers and go, okay, do we make more money this way or that way? Since Bob Iger has built his career around creative and around content, I don't think he's going to give up content. That's my belief right now. And I think that because Comcast executives are just so likely to commit unforced errors, that that's going to be the outcome here. And that's why I continue to laugh whenever, you know, we start a conversation with maybe we should start paying attention to Peacock. Over at Diamond Sports, the separation from former parent Sinclair is practically complete as the operator of regional sports network Bally Sports has named a new CEO. I don't think it matters who this new CEO is. Don't bother trying to remember his name. He won't be around much longer. Look, um, Sinclair took on $9 billion in debt to buy the regional sports networks from Disney. And ever since, the networks have lost them money. In the third quarter of this year, Bally Sports lost another billion dollars. Sinclair is probably happy to be rid of this albatross, having spun it off essentially as an independent company, Diamond Sports. But I honestly don't know if either of these companies survives this debacle. I mean, we were laughing at this two years ago, and it's just gotten funnier now. The best analogy for this really is that Diamond spun off from Sinclair and Sinclair basically said, all right, we're dropping you in the desert. Here's a canteen and some supplies so that you can survive. And now six months later, they're going, you know what? We, we need the canteen and the supplies back. Good luck. Bye. It's not an unprecedented scenario, of course. We saw that AT&T, before selling Warner Brothers to Discovery, spun off DirecTV, which was another money-losing proposition. And DirecTV hasn't really flourished since. We can't even get NFL Sunday ticket to work throughout the day. I mean, DirecTV, I'm not saying it's dead. I'm just saying that the family members are in the hospital room right now deciding whether or not to pull the plug. And we all know which way the conversation's heading. Lastly, just in time for Christmas, Cameo, the celebrity personalized message service, has just launched Cameo Kids with personalized message for your kids from Cocomelon, Blippi, Thomas the Tank Engine, and more. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. This cannot be real. Is this real? This is my nightmare coming to life. <laughs> it's real. I saw I got an email about it yesterday. Which one did you buy? It's a Christmas present for you, so I'm not telling. <laughs> Oh, I hope it wasn't the blippy one, Kim, because that's what I got him. Oh, everything, no. <laughs> everything I know about Thomas the Tank Engine, I learned from Bullet Train. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, Cameo is that service where you pay to get a, say, personalized birthday greeting from some 
C-list celebrity that happens to want to put some extra dollars in their pockets. That's what this is, except in this case, it's companies like Candle Media who are putting this money towards their bottom line. Candle Media, the company run by Kevin Meyer and Thomas Staggs and backed by equity firm Blackstone, is all in here. Their Moonbug Studios owns Coco Melon and Blippi, and you can get a message from them for your kids for the low, low price of only $30. Bro, all kidding aside, is this the most 10 out of 10 idea you've heard this year? Oh, this is genius. There's low overhead, practically no overhead to this. And $30 for what is going to amount to what is like, what, 10, 20 seconds of video? This is fantastic. Right. You have to hand it to Myron Staggs. And there's been conversation. I keep an eye on this. Will Iger just buy Candle Media and then admit he screwed up the succession and bring in either Meyer or Staggs or both to run Disney? Because that's what they need to do. He, he treated Staggs bad. I mean, there's just no getting around that. Their families vacation together. And then just for whatever reason, he soured on Staggs as a successor. That has just proven to be the worst mistake Disney could have made. This dude's a genius. I mean, this dude is quantifiably one of the smartest people in media today. And Meyer and Staggs are still working for Disney, whether they admit it or not, because my God, Kim, how much money is Disney going to make when it rips off this idea for Mickey and Minnie Mouse? Seriously. Yeah, yeah. Not just Mickey and Minnie Mouse, but geez, any character you can have a princess record it you can have insert your favorite character here it's huge it's huge potential and huge bucks i mean for me this is like a get out of jail free card i could do literally anything to you in the relationship and then if i was <laughs> stitch cameo you'll forgive me it's just yeah. that <laughs> yeah stitch cameo and it's all good <laughs> I, I cannot believe nobody had done this before because I read that and I got chills. It was such a great idea. And Roll is drilled the immediacy of it. You can do this in a minute. I mean, in an absolute minute, and it is almost entirely pure profit. This is the future, and it is going to just revolutionize Disney's income. It is. And it happened through Coco Melon, which is amazing to me. Let's be clear that Disney is not involved in this specific program, but it's really, yeah, it'd be really easy for them to just spin up their own. Anyone who's been to a Disney resort will know that you can have Mickey Mouse give a wake-up call to your kids in the morning. I don't know if they charge for that or not, but this is a natural progression of that. This is just raw, pure cash in the bank. And they're they're natural marketing permutations of this that are brilliant. Like, let's say instead of spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars marketing a film, you do a free cameo of uh, what's next family film? I guess Puss in Boots. You do a free cameo from characters from Puss in Boots or like a dollar cameo, whatever, so that you're paying for your overhead. And you are building awareness and kids want to go see that movie now and they start pressuring their parents. Everything about this is genius, seriously. Oh, I love that, David. That one hadn't even occurred to me, but essentially you're paying them to create your own 30-second commercial. Exactly, yes. God, that's a great analogy too. Well said. All right, well, Tim, how about you go ahead and take us into the ratings because there's really nothing box office related to talk about this week. Yeah, literally no new releases this weekend, though. Black Panther kind of ever did cross 400 million. That's about the only exciting thing to talk about. But we have the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, November 7th to Sunday, November 13th, 2022. And yeah, there's a couple of interesting things to talk about here, but the short version is Netflix kicks some butt. Because uh, your top show is still, of course, Manifest 52 episodes. Episodes, almost 2.3 billion minutes. That's the first full week of availability for the 10 episodes that made up 
season the first half of season four more to come in 2023 oh boy but yeah this NBC just looks goofy for canceling this now i mean you can't fault them clearly manifest was doing better on streaming than it ever was doing on broadcast and they cut it loose as we discussed earlier this was actually a show produced by warner brothers television so nbc really wasn't getting any of the back end in the first place so nbc did what was best for them and warner brothers and netflix get the benefit in return we have a show returning in second, and we we saw that poke its head back onto the list a couple months ago when you know the queen died. But here is the crown now with season five arriving on November 9th. So fifty total episodes. Uh yeah, just a cool two point one billion minutes feud. What was that all? Oh, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> So it, it did have most of the week, but yeah, we knew this would explode back on the list when those new episodes arrived after we we realized it was coming very soon, just uh, when it was back on the on the ratings chart in, in September. But yeah, we that's that that's that's solid, especially if they just keep, you know, jumping around. Now we're in the more modern day. That's what I keep thinking. If you're involved with the crown, you know that it's, you know, a dangerous conversation to have but the temptation of harry and Meghan markle as a season that would be the most watched the crown ever and even if there were complaints that would only boost the numbers that much more so i am kind of secretly hoping they do that even though i know it'll be terrible and inflammatory am i wrong the this is actually the last season of the crown but don't worry david netflix doing a show about harry and megan hmm uh, they actually have announced a season season six so that will come out next year okay the, fo- focusing on the the final years of queen elizabeth yeah and along with that as raul alluded to there is a documentary series with harry and megan now yeah i expect this one to stick around for for quite some time as the previous season also hung around for quite quite some time after its, re- its release and then a, a return for it uh probably around this time next year love is blind is still here in third once again it wrapped up its third season adding two more episodes for a fin- its finale on November 9th. Just another 1.2 billion minutes for this clearly very cheap to make series for Netflix, but it brings in the viewers and that's what counts. Do better, people. Yeah, come on. There's there's better stuff to watch. Uh, we do have a new show in fourth. This is Warrior Nun, 595 million minutes, 18 episodes. It's actually the second season that arrived on November 10th. So just a, uh, a three-day number here. The first season was actually July 2020. So it had been quite some time uh, and I didn't know that this would be as popular as it was. Uh, it comes in with only 595 million minutes. So it does drop after the first three. But if you're making it on the list, you're clearly one of the more popular shows. Yeah, we watched the first season and Kim in particular really, really liked it. As far as Buffy clones go, this one's pretty good. We have not watched any of season two yet, but <laughs> YouTube keeps feeding me highlights from it. They're kind of unavoidable and uh, it does seem like they've got another really good season. Uh, fifth is Great British Baking Show, 84 episodes, 528 million minutes, and it's all shows we've seen before from here on. Uh, in sixth is Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. It's fifth season now complete, 56 episodes, 520 million minutes. That episode arrived on the 9th of November. We probably see it for another week. Uh, it did get, clearly get a, a bump here as people probably binge the whole season. It'll probably, like I said, hang around next week, and then we won't see it again until we get one more season, I'm sure. Uh, from scratch, we've seen that for a while now. In seventh, eight episodes, 495 million minutes. Andor is up to 10 episodes, two more to go, 420 million minutes. That's on Disney+. Plus. Inside Man from Netflix, 413 million minutes for just its four episodes after its 
impressive debut last week. And The Watcher wraps things up on the originals chart, 409 million minutes for seven episodes. Over in movies, it's once again led by Enola Holmes 2, 942 million minutes. So that, that's very solid for its first full week of availability. And it actually brought in enough people to bring back Jumping ahead a bit, in seventh is the original film, uh, 266 million minutes that came out in 2020. Uh, well done, Millie Bobby. <laughs> she's going to be, I mean, she's already big already, thanks to like Stranger Things and then she's in a bunch of things, but she's going to be just one of the most famous people on the planet in a couple of years, isn't she? Yeah, she really is Netflix's big girl her star. Yeah. Uh, something new, though, in second, also from Netflix, Where the Crawdads Sing, 659 million minutes. This was a theatrical release just uh, over the summer. I am not surprised by this because my mother was obsessed with this and could not wait for me to buy it on Voodoo the day it became available. So I think that there was a lot of people like her out there and this number doesn't shock me at all. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, based on a novel made 90 million in theaters domestically. So yeah, that box office hit and now very successful on Netflix too. All right, David, this one's for you because we have our first Christmas themed movie hitting the list. This is Falling for Christmas, 636 million minutes. This is the Lindsay Lohan Christmas movie. It's better if you think of it as a Mean Girls sequel. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't feature Lindsay. It also has uh, her sister, I want to say Aliana is her name, something like that, and a guy named Cord, C-H-O-R-D. And also, remember One Hit Wonder, Jack Wagner? All kinds of moving parts in this film. I knew you'd seen it. <laughs> No, I want to see Garcia one instead. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, And fourth is Hotel Transylvania 2, still for some reason through to 28 million minutes. Still trying to wrap my head around that one. In fifth is every year. Why are you so stubborn? But why is it still here? Halloween's over. Hotel Transylvania. (laughs) (laughs) But just the second one, not the others. Uh, we do have something new in fifth. Here is from HBO Max. Don't worry, darling. 290 million minutes. I can hear Kim clenching her teeth from here. Can. <laughs> <laughs> yep. After it's um, not really all that successful theatrical release, it arrived on streaming on November 7th. This was one of the David Zaslav debacles. They could have released a lot of films this year, and instead they chose, well, eventually three, but it was just going to be two. And one of the two was Don't Worry Darling, which then had one of the worst press tours since, I don't know, Jiggly. It was just an <laughs> debacle in every way. And I guess that created some interest, but everyone who watches it realizes, oh my God, this is a bad movie, and that weird little Harry Styles guy can't act at all. Yeah, it, it did manage $45 million, and most of that was probably just because of all the controversy it generated from that press tour, which is more interesting than the actual movie. But yeah, we I figured we'd, we'd see it here probably just, just for this week. I don't expect to see it next week, but yeah, it's it, it's not good. There's also an anti-Hallmark movie here where after it was over, Harry Styles' publicist convinced him, you need to break up with Olivia Wilde today and block her texts, okay? <laughs> In six, we either have some pre-gaming or we have some very silly people because Black Panther is here, 289 million minutes just in time for the arrival of Wakanda Forever in theaters on the 11th. That is 289 million minutes of very happy fans. That's all I'll say. Yes. I'm sure they were looking up Wakanda Forever, but you know, saw that only this one existed and then watched it anyway. At least they weren't looking for it on Netflix. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's what I was thinking as well. I do suspect that something on Netflix probably got a boost because people were looking for it on Netflix. But of course, <laughs> Black Panther is only available on Disney+. Plus, and yeah. How many of these people actually watch this on Disney Plus thinking they were watching the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it seems right. awfully familiar. Hmm. 
Uh, seventh was the original Enola Holmes, as we mentioned, 266 million minutes. Eighth is The Good Nurse, 265 million minutes. Ninth is your odd one for the week, Mile 22, 262 million minutes. This was a action film bomb that had Mark Wahlberg, uh, some other people, and also Ronda Rousey for some reason. Uh, turns out it arrived on back on Netflix from wherever it was on November 1st. So this is just some carryover from them promoting, clearly promoting it because it was quote, new to the service. Yeah, loath as I am to give Mark Wahlberg credit, we're always talking about how there is a Jason Statham effect on streaming. He seems to get a lesser version of that as well. And movies wraps up with Sing 2, which we see all the time now, 238 million minutes. Right. Acquired is nine shows we've seen before, led once again by Coca Melon, 791 million minutes. But the interesting thing here is something in fifth, because it's from Peacock and it's not The Office. It is Yellowstone, 607 million minutes for 37 episodes. This is, uh, I guess, pre gaming for the newest season that arrived on the Paramount Network. Yeah, fascinating. I think it goes hand in hand with why Peacock finally decided to agree with Nielsen to have their ratings show up here, given the numbers that they got on the Halloween ends movie and then just a few weeks later here's Yellowstone mm-hmm. Peacock thought they were going to be having a, a strong month and this is paying off they are showing up on the ratings good for them I do want to point out that David and I both went down the same rabbit hole to try to figure out where new episodes of Yellowstone can be streamed and the answer is nowhere this <laughs> right? yeah. this is all previous seasons of Yellowstone. The new season of Yellowstone premiered, which is why past seasons are doing well on streaming right now. Mm -hmm. But if you want to watch a new episode of Yellowstone, you have to be watching it on the Paramount Network, which is a channel on cable that nobody has or uh, nowhere. You probably have it. You just don't even realize what it was. It was the the one time. It's the latest iteration of what the TNN and then the National Network and then Spike TV. And and now several years ago, they rebranded to the the Paramount Network. And that's where you'll find this. But yeah, I mean, it's the same idea as the like the CW shows. Like the only way to watch them is on TV until the season ends and then it shows up on streaming. It's 39 episodes, which constitute the first four seasons. The fifth season just began airing the week of these ratings, the 13th, the first two episodes has premiered and they are weekly from from here so yeah i get it it's it's we knew this was like a popular show because people are somehow finding the paramount network and it's actually you know grown in viewership over its few seasons so this is this is actually a big hit for linear television yeah this we were talking earlier about the three million new subscribers to peacock we should allow for the possibility that a decent percentage of them are specifically for yellowstone seriously Supposedly, the premiere episode drew nine million viewers. Totally believe it. That's that. Yeah, that that's insane. So yeah, and the fact that it's not available for streaming just makes me wonder what year is it. Uh, but yeah, overall, uh, uh, you know, quiet week. I, I was excited to see that show from from Peacock. Netflix dominated. Had two shows over two billion minutes. And another another one over over a billion. And all homes is still doing very well. Uh, we're going to get that Wednesday number real soon, and that's going to be absolutely massive as, as well. But that's all I have for the ratings for this week. Thanks for sharing the ratings, Tim. In our green lights and cancellations this week, Michael Flanagan's The Midnight Club has been canceled after one season at Netflix. We recently told you that Flanagan had left Netflix to work with Amazon and 
More on that in a moment. Flanagan has produced a new horror series for Netflix annually, starting with The Haunting of Hill House, then The Haunting of Bly Manor and Midnight Mass last year. But The Midnight Club was supposed to be different, a multi-season series. Flanagan himself said that he doesn't think that Netflix canceled it because of his move to Amazon, as he is, in fact, continuing to produce content for Netflix and, I guess, finishing out his contract. He does have The Fall of the House of Usher still coming up on Netflix. Really... Flanagan thinks that it was just because The Midnight Club didn't get the ratings that Netflix wanted. And um, additionally, fans of The Midnight Club can get some closure by going to Mike Flanagan's Tumblr page because apparently Tumblr still exists. He has released his entire treatment for season two of the series there. And so anyone who wants to know what happens to the characters can read up on that there. I will say, I think Flanagan is being a pro here. No matter what either party says, the fact that he was going to the competition had to factor in this decision. Otherwise, frankly, both parties are being childlike. Uh, It's as simple as that. You have to consider, should we highlight something from someone who is immediately going to go somewhere else? And just to be clear, I'm not saying you have to cancel it. It just needs to be a consideration. It's a dark day at HBO Max as the best show in streaming, F Boy Island, has been canceled after two seasons. <laughs> as oh, I no. said when I heard the announcement, the real reality show I would watch is if they just left all the contestants out there. Okay? Cancel the show, leave them out there, <laughs> keep going, and see what happens next. Matt Damon is reteaming with his Born Identity director, Doug Lyman. Damon and Casey Affleck will be planning a heist in The Instigators, an Apple original film. The most interesting part of this is that Doug Lyman did not direct the sequels to The Born Identity because reportedly everything he did on that project was a mess and it had to be saved. And I kind of wonder about that when I hear these reports. Did Matt Damon actually disagree this whole time and believe that Lyman had run a good set? We mentioned Mike Flanagan earlier, and his first project at Amazon has already been announced, and it's going to be ambitious. He'll be adapting Stephen King's The Dark Tower for a series and movies. Flanagan and his partner, Trevor Macy, see this as five seasons and two movies. So yeah, like Kim said, this is, this is pretty darn ambitious. Flanagan's already written and directed two previous Stephen King adaptations, Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep. I don't know if those are really projects he should be crowing about, but at least he's got a type. And he's described the Dark Tower as his dream project. I think we can assume this will be a brand new adaptation unrelated to the 2017 movie with Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey that bombed and the 2020 pilot starring Michael Rue that nobody remembers. No Dark Tower fans here? I have read the first book or two. I'll be honest, I would actually probably rather watch it in serialized television form. So I'm interested to see what he does. I, I like Flanagan's work with the horror genre, so could be good. It'll have to be the Sandman kind of adaptation where it's reverential to the source material and and confirm that throughout the movie, Kim was saying, boy, this does not work as a movie. It needs to be stretched out into a television series. So she's felt that way for at least five years. And also, I have to laugh, I had completely forgotten about the Michael Rooker thing. So you're right there. It'd just be nice if once somebody took the Dark Tower seriously, because it deserves that. Yep. 
over at Paramount Plus, we're getting some nostalgia as the streamer is producing a sequel to the Reese Witherspoon movie Election and will be adapting a movie based on the Broadway musical Mean Girls, which itself was adapted from the Tina Fey comedy of the same name. Paramount has had some bad news lately with cuts and layoffs, but they continue to create original content for Paramount Plus. And so far, so far, I've been impressed with what they've made. Keep in mind that the horror movie Smile, which was a hit at the box office, was originally intended for Paramount Plus. And I feel it's possible that either of these two new projects may be getting a theatrical release first as well. We'll just have to wait and see. The election sequel is based on the novel Tracy Flick Can't Win and will We'll see Reese Witherspoon returning in the lead. Sorry, David. <laughs> Election is legitimately one of my most hated films ever. Everything about it is terrible, and I will never get the love for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will close out with what's been keeping us busy this past week, as we always do. And I have, as I mentioned in a previous episode that I would be doing, watched Bumper in Berlin. It is based on the character Bumper, who appeared in Pitch Perfect. It's many years later. He's grown up. He's out of college. He's still singing a cappella and, you know, kind of having trouble letting go of those happy college days, but gets an invite to go over to Berlin and potentially maybe become a star. Adam Devine is delightful. I really like him. I know there's plenty of people who probably find him annoying. Bumper is sort of intended to be a annoying but well-meaning character. But the best part, the best part of Bumper in Berlin is that it reunites Divine with Sarah Hyland. They were previously a couple on Modern Family. And even though they did not end up together in the end, much to my and David's chagrin, this is a wonderful way to just enjoy the amazing chemistry that the two of them have together. They always did. They still do. It is pure delight. They're both talented singers. They're both entertaining. And there are also some really fun supporting characters in Flula Borg and also Jamila Jamil of The Good Place. I will say this. This is a Simpsons reference. It's absolutely true. Watching this film with Kim, I felt like I was at an Andy Williams concert <laughs> with Nelson Muntz. I thought it was fine and I adore Sarah Hyland's voice. Do yourself a favor and Google her cover of Closer on YouTube, it'll take your breath away. She can sing. The show itself is a glorious mess. And, you know, I, I like it well enough. It's fine. It was Kim's religion. I mean, she was just giddy throughout the six episodes. Yeah, it made me very happy. What more could I want? Yeah, I binged it all over the period of like a day or two. It's a very quick watch. I think it's only mm -hmm. like, what, six episodes? And six episodes. They're only about a half hour. Yeah. And I'll agree with David. It's a mess. I watched it because it was short and because I could get to the closure at the end, although it does leave it open for a new season, which I now expect they will probably do. The highlight by far is Sarah Hyland. Her acting is great. Her singing is great. Everybody else just seems to be kind of cruising through the whole thing. Jamil Jamil is entertaining, but she's playing a rather two-dimensional caricature. I wanted Flula to be better in this. There's just a lot of very simple, cliche jokes 
about, oh, things are different in Germany. Look how silly Europeans and Germans are. Oh, let's make more fun of their universal health care. There was just so much of that. And they kept going back to the same lame jokes. Bumper eats a, uh, an ice cream sundae every morning for breakfast. That wasn't funny the first time. So maybe if we repeat it two or three times, it'll be funnier later. I don't know. Nobody's singing is very good except for Sarah Highlands. She is spectacular. It's worth watching literally for that. Just watch the whole series so you can catch the moments where she's singing. She's great. They're not making fun of Germany. They're making fun of the United States. That's all I want to say there. Correct. The other thing I want to say, there's an actress who's basically an unknown in this named uh, Lyra Abova. She's a model. She is having the time of her life in Bumper in Berlin, and it really comes across. I loved her performance. Probably my favorite of the cast. All right, Tim, how about you? Just more of the stuff I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, uh, more Marvel Snap. They did put in an update recently. So there's more cards that are just really hard to obtain, but uh, it's still pretty fun. They do keep switching it up with uh, the different locations and which changed how the, the gameplay is. And, and it's really cool. More Yakuza like a dragon, probably, I don't know, good 30 plus hours into that, which is, you know, two cutscenes. Uh, but no, it's it's very uh, uh, entertaining gameplay and a, and a good story. Uh, but the big news of the week is we got an announcement for Hades 2. Inject it in my veins right now. The not wait for that to be out. Yeah, when I saw that was announced, my immediate impression was, all right, Blizzard, your move. And it just so <laughs> happened that the same day, I think it was Kotaku came out with a uh, preview of Diablo 4. So they're clearly tr- trying to position themselves against each other. Yeah, supposedly early access sometime in early 2023 and then full release later in the year, but yeah, give it to me now. And I can't, if it, the first one plays really well on the Steam Deck, so I'm sure this one will do very well as well. So I cannot wait. And finally, David. I've got good news and bad news in the K-drama world. I watch Sumo Do, Sumo Don't, and Falling Into Your Smile. And well, Falling Into Your Smile, the esports drama did end with the couple admitting they were very much in love and winning the esports competition when she made a daring move of resurrection at the perfect time that turned around a seemingly impossible circumstance and gave them the shocking victory. However, sumos do, sumo don't. Well, bad news there. It, it turns out that the sumo club, hugely successful. They've got like 25, 30 members by the end of the season. People really love their sumo. But the woman who's in charge of the sumo club has developed feelings for the male protagonist. At exactly the wrong time at the end of the season, she comes around and sees his ex-girlfriend hugging him from behind. Now, he's an unwilling participant in the hug. It's more of a he's letting her say goodbye type of thing. But the sumo club leader doesn't know this and it breaks her heart. I need my sumo do sumo don't season two to come very very soon also there was kind of a shocking spoiler in all this it turns out that uh falling into your smile isn't a k-drama even though the actress is basically one of the most recognizable talents in south korea right now it's actually a chinese drama it's one of those that kind of blurs the lines in terms of production and it sounds like that it is just an absolute sensation in china so while it was a closed finish i kind of expect a season two on that as well Yes, and Sumo Do, Sumo Don't is actually Japanese. Oh, my Um, God. Yeah. (laughs) And to clarify, Sumo Do, Sumo Don't is on Disney Plus while Falling Into Your Smile is on Netflix. Is that right, David? Yes, watch them both. I regret nothing in life. (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at streamingintothevoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us and giving us a review in your favorite podcast player. Be sure to watch for us again next week. <laughs>